Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Geralt of Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Force Majeure Construction is going well, I am told. My advisor, Rafford, believes the Riverlocks will be complete by the end of the year. Commerce from Mahakam should increase once we control the flow of the rivers. And I need not tell you, brother, that it will be far easier to monitor who is sailing in our lands once the locks are in place. Give my love to Mother, will you? And to Megan. I can't believe how much she's grown since I saw her last. Letter from King Adalbert of Tamaria to Duke Ivan of Maribor. Dated August 23rd, 1117. 1. The Ismena River was clogged with bodies that moved. Peering over the edge of the river lion, Ethramel on tread saw dozens of squat, sickly green creatures that jaunted along the bottom of the river. One wouldn't be able to see them if they simply walked along the Ismena River bank. That's what made them dangerous. Ethramel finished the green apple he was eating and tossed the core into the river. It splashed and caused a ripple over the otherwise placid water. He watched three creatures scramble towards the sinking apple, reaching for it with their elongated, waterlogged fingers. The fastest one shoved the corn to its mouth and threw its head back, its sharpened teeth working slowly. Drowners, Captain Bathic of Rivia said, peering over the edge. No river in the world they don't infest. I know, the sorcerer said. He'd lived long enough to see most rivers on the continent, and he never willingly set foot in one. Drowners were fast, and always hungry. Useful to dump bodies in after a battle, though, Ethramel thought. He shivered. Ethramel had fought in a half-dozen battles during the Second Northern War, while serving in the Vryhead Brigade. He fought for Nilfgaard then, trying to conquer the North in Imperator Emir Var Emrys's name. That campaign ended suddenly and dramatically, at the Battle of Brenna. And all I got for serving the Black Cloaks was a bad reputation and a bounty on my head, Ethramel thought. Still better than most who served in the Vryhead Brigade. At least I wasn't executed for war crimes. It was safe to say he felt a little bitter about the whole thing. Ethramel spat into the river, watching the tiny ripples spread. How long until we reach the town at the end of the Ismena, he asked. What's it called again? Tarlock? Town's called Tarnow. Captain Bothick scratched at his scraggly gray beard. And no later than tomorrow. Wise of you all to sail towards the Mahaka Mountains, if you ask me. What with the city of Vizima under siege from the Black Cloaks? Ethramel had the same thought, and told as much to his companions. He convinced them they should sail as far east along the Ismena River as they could, back the way they came from Crag Ross, then head north towards the city of Alander. Ethramel had business in the city, with one Tobias of Alander. 
he planned to sell the fistech he had to Tobias, who he had met at the Mahakam summit. Ethramel still had bags laden with the drug from his visit with Vidmar, that enterprising Mahakam dwarf. The bags were below deck, along with his horse Enye, who wasn't happy being penned up in the boat. And from the city of Alander, the Pontar Valley was a stone's throw away. To confront this gutter rebellion, Ethramel thought, if we have half a mind to. The elf wasn't sure he did. Another Dwan rebellion didn't interest him much. What did interest him was reaching the Pontar River and setting up his and Jeremiah's trade route. And tomorrow is the fastest we can reach Ta now, he asked the Rivian captain. Of course it is. That craftsman hired me and my crew to ship his crossbows across the north, and I intend to do it in as quick a manner as possible. Slow merchants never make coin, you know. I'll get you to Tar now as fast as possible. But as I said when signing the contract, one can account for force majeure, especially with the war going on. That's a fancy term. Didn't take you for a learned man, Ethramel said. Ain't learned, just been in the business a long time. Captain Bothick had insisted on putting an Act of the Gods clause in the contract Jeremiah drew up, freeing him from liability if anything happened to their goods that was out of his control, such as a storm or a war. The captain signed the contract, and his crew was officially employed by Jeremiah Keller to exclusively ship his repeating crossbows across the north. The crossbows and Vidmar's Fistech, Ethramel thought. He had discussed the smuggling idea with Jeremiah, and was not in the least bit surprised when the craftsman agreed to help him move his Fistech. For cut of the profit, of course. One of the sailors shouted from the quarterdeck, and the rowing below deck stopped, leaving the river lion to float serenely along the Ismena. The sorcerer raised an eyebrow. Is this what you mean when you say as fast as possible? Can't be helped. Bathick pointed to a wooden gate that jutted up from the river, just in front of their ship. Unless you have a better way to sail over that. The gate had escaped the sorcerer's notice until now. He had been so in his head. The riverbanks, Ethramel also noticed, had slowly been rising around them, to the point where it now felt like they were trapped in a gully instead of floating on a river. Carmagnola pointed at the gate. What's it for? Used to control the flow of the river. How else do you think we were sailing upstream so easily? Bathick strode to the other side of the deck and leaned against the railing. The bank loomed above them, but not so high that Ethramel couldn't see a small stone hut. Bathick shouted, and a beanpole of a man strode out, looked down on them, and tipped his hat. Morning, the man said, wishing to head upstream, I suppose. No, we were just hoping to float here and gab a while before heading back. All right, no need to be fussy about it. The beanpole walked next to the gate and started turning a large wooden crank. The gate opened inward, creating small waves as it did, and the river lion sailed through it, before promptly stopping in front of another gate that loomed just as high over them. The beanpole turned the crank the opposite direction, and the gate behind them closed. The river bank inside this small chamber was lined with stone. Jeremiah came from below deck and asked what they were doing. Waiting in this here lock, Bathick said. He pointed to the beanpole, who was continually turning a second, larger wooden crank. That drains the water from upstream so we can level out and continue on our way. It takes a few minutes. The water beneath the river lion slowly began to rise. Ethramel looked over the gate just as they entered and saw that the Ismena River's water level was lower than he thought. He looked over at the gate ahead and saw that the water level there was much higher. Funny how perspective works, he thought. Once the ship was level with the water ahead of them, the beanpole walked to the second gate and turned a third, smaller crank. The gate opened inward, and the crew below deck began paddling again. 
the beanpole waved at the river lion as they passed. On behalf of Princess Anais, Temeria's future queen, travel in peace. And you as well, Bothic muttered. He smiled at Ethramel, Jeremiah, and Carmagnola. That was easier than usual. Used to be they asked for a manifest of what you're shipping, but it seems the rules have been laxed recently. You can thank me for that, Ethramel said with pride. And why not? It was his idea to loosen trade restrictions on the rivers, to help the northern kingdoms get much-needed supplies in their fight against Nilfgaard, and, of course, to make it easier to smuggle Fistech. It really is a model of human ingenuity, Jeremiah said, marveling at the gate as it closed behind them. Ethramel didn't bother pointing out that the elves had been using gates and locks on their rivers since before the first Dwan set foot on the continent. Does it count as a force majeure if the structure is man-made? Ethramel asked Bothic. The Rivian grinned and shook his head. This is just part of the trade. How many gates and, uh, what did you call it? How many gates and locks are there? Carmagnola asked. Dozens. Every river in Tamaria's got them. Bathic picked at his dirty teeth. On this part of the Ismena River? Two more. Like I said, we'll be in Tarnow by tomorrow. And then you'll be on your way to Crag Ross to pick up your first shipment of crossbows, Jeremiah reminded him. Yes, yes. Don't you worry, Master Keller. We'll hold up our end of the contract, so long as you keep your pace steady. Ethramel stretched. Is the Witcher still meditating at the fore of the ship? What else would he be doing? Carmagnola said. The sorcerer shrugged and looked over the ship again. The drowners still milled about in the water beneath, as constant as the river itself. 2. The Witcher felt the boat careen to a stop for the third time. He opened his eye and saw that they were in front of another wooden gate. The sun was peeking over the blue mountains to the east, and it had not yet dispelled the chilly evening air. His companions were up and milling about on the deck, despite the early hour. Zevo imagined it was difficult getting a good night's sleep in the cramped quarters below deck with four restless horses. He had elected to meditate at the fore of the river lion, as he had been the entire trip. Zevo stood up and cracked his neck as Captain Bothick looked up at the riverbank above them and shouted, Oi, you gonna keep us here all day? It seemed that the gatekeeper might. Zevo leaned against the mast and waited with everyone else. There was nothing else anyone could do. Bathick cupped his hands and hollered again, to no avail. After a third holler, five minutes later, a young woman's head popped overhead. She wore a simple tunic and cut her sandy hair short, perhaps to accentuate her pointed ears. Zevo judged she was a half-elf, though we couldn't say for sure. The woman smiled down sheepishly at them. Sorry, early morning and all. You headed upstream? No, we were hoping to float here and gab a while before heading back. Point taken. The name's Finn, by the way. What's yours? Don't see how that's your concern. Finn nodded and walked to the wooden crank next to the gate. She turned it slowly, and for the third time in two days, the river lion sailed into a small lock. Finn closed the gate behind them and again peered down at them. So what are you transporting? Nothing, Bothick said. The gatekeeper squinted as she counted everyone on deck. Sure are transporting a lot of people. Five that I can see, not including the folks rowing below deck. Surely you've got some supplies. Nothing that's for sale, Jeremiah called up. Now please let us pass. We're in something of a hurry. Sure, sure. We are too. Finn motioned behind her, and five men clad in leather armor appeared next to her. The men had crossbows trained on the ship. Zevo sighed. He suddenly felt tired again. I take it you're not gatekeepers, he said. Sure aren't, Finn said with a grin. We're humble servants of the Gutter King, who thanks you for the supplies you're about to give us. 
Shouldn't you be serving your king in the Pontar Valley with the rest of the gutter rebellion? The Witcher asked. Someone's got to bring food home. You can't win war on an empty stomach. And what do you all hope to gain from fighting a war with the North? Jeremiah asked. He eyed his crossbow, resting against the nearby mast for just such an occasion. Your own kingdom, I suppose? Freedom, from the crushing oppression of these backwards kings. You literally follow someone called the Gutter King, Ethramel said. Forgive my skepticism, kin, but how will your kingdom be any less oppressive? Because we'll all have a say in how things are run, similar to Nilfgaard's Imperial Senate, where people we choose rule the kingdom. Except our Senate will have actual power, unlike in the South. Zevo barked laughter. The idea was ridiculous on its face. He couldn't imagine how things would look if all the kingdoms on the continent were left in the hands of the rabble, liable to sway whichever direction the wind blew. It would never work. There had always been kings and nobility, and there always would be. So here's what you're going to do, Finn said, ignoring Zevo's laughter. You're all going to put your weapons at the fore of the ship. Then we're going to raise you up, nice and slow. You'll get off peacefully, let us take what needs taking, and then we'll send you on your way. No, Zevo said immediately. Finn shrugged. Then we'll shoot you from up here if you're so keen to die. Zevo grunted and looked at his companions. They all nodded. Their odds looked long, that was true, but they knew they'd likely be killed if they gave up. The Gutter Rebellion would have many uses for a ship, and the Drowners made it easy to get rid of any bodies. His eye flicked up the mast, and the rope netting that stretched down from it. Without a word, Zevo summoned up his power and bent his right thumb and pinky inward, while pushing his middle and fourth finger together. He held his palm up and ejected the power in the sign of Quen, creating a shimmering ball of air that enveloped everyone on the ship. One of the rebels, startled at the sight, fired his crossbow. It flew true, but splintered against the invisible barrier. Zevo flinched as he felt his meager power draining every second he held the barrier up. Fortunately, Jeremiah wasted no time lunging for his crossbow, while Ethramel drew his staff. Carmignola and Bothic, not much use with their daggers, jumped for cover. Jeremiah aimed his crossbow, and Zeva released the shield. The craftsman fired, and his bolt split and hit the hapless rebel that shot too early. He clutched the bolt sticking out of his chest and fell from sight. Finn reached into the bag at her side and shook a small vial of liquid. Before anyone could identify what it was, she tossed it underhand towards the ship. It shattered at Jeremiah's feet, and Zevo expected the boat to be ripped apart in an explosion, not unlike the concoction the assassin Luthley used back in Edern. Instead of fire, a plume of white gas crept out. It spread across the deck before anyone could cover their mouths. Zevo inhaled it and felt his throat and lungs burn. He wheezed and hacked, but that only made the burning worse. Poison, Zevo thought. He quickly covered his mouth and leapt onto the cargo net. He scampered up the mast on it, away from the spreading gas. He coughed and nearly lost his grip on the rope. He spat a thick gob of green phlegm and looked up to see one of the rebels aiming a crossbow at him. Shit, he said. Ethramel shouted an elder speech below, and the witcher felt a gust of wind rush beneath him, rustling his hair and drying out his eye. The gas dissipated in an instant and the powerful gust seemed to throw the rebel aiming at Zevo off balance. He waved his hands like a flightless bird and tumbled off the edge of the stone riverbank. He missed the ship and landed in the river with a splash. His head broke above the water, but his gasping breath quickly turned into screams. Red bubbled around him, and he was pulled underwater by an unseen force. Zevo, of course, didn't need to see what did that. He'd seen drowners kill plenty of people before. 
Each breath felt like drinking liquid fire, but the witcher scrambled up the netting until he was above the riverbank. Fortunately, the four remaining rebels seemed intent on shooting Ethramel and Jeremiah before falling back to reload. That seemed the smart move. After all, the riverbank was too far for anyone to make a clean jump. If a normal man leapt, he would have plummeted towards the drowners before making it three-quarters of the way across. But Zevo was not an ordinary man. Zevo was a mutant, created by other mutants to do what needed to be done. The gutter rebels were not the monsters he was trained to kill, but they would die just the same. Feeling his muscles coil like springs, Zevo took a deep and painful breath and leapt. The cargo net, though springy, was not ideal for pushing off. Zevo soared over the water, arms outstretched. He hit the side of the stone riverbank and lost all of his breath. His chest, already on fire from the inside, exploded in a burst of pain from the outside. But Zevo's hands found purchase above, and he started to haul himself, legs dangling. Sweat beaded on Zevo's forehead as he pulled himself up enough to see the stone ground, and a rebel's boots. One of the rebels stomped on Zevo's left hand. The witcher grunted as he let go and pulled his arm back instinctively, and he swung dangerously to his right, his hip bumping against the stone wall. The rebel raised his foot to stomp on Zevo's right hand and drop him into the water below, but the witcher swung back and grabbed the rebel's leg with his left hand, pulling him hard. The rebel fell onto his back and gasped. Zevo coughed painfully, afraid he would lose his grip, but he managed to scramble onto the riverbank with a gasp. The witcher wasted no time jumping to his feet, drawing his steel sword, and running the rebel on the floor through. He felt nothing as he watched the light escape the man's eyes. He heard two rebels shouting and rushing towards him, swords drawn. Zevo sidestepped the first rebel strike and parried the second. Unfortunately, the first rebel recovered faster than Zevo thought, and managed to slide his blade between the plates of Zevo's armor, slicing open his ribs. Zevo grabbed his side and went down to one knee, swinging at the rebel's leg and connecting. The man yowled and hopped on one leg. Zevo sprung up and shoved his sword through the man's guts. He felt the rebel's stinking breath on his face as he went limp. Zevo straightened and saw Finn and the last rebel, swords drawn. He swung blood off his steel sword and hobbled forward. His breath was ragged, and breathing hurt. Each rebel took one side, trying to flank him. The witcher felt himself slowing, worn down from the accumulation of wounds. He parried Finn's downward strike and hopped away from the second rebel's thrust, a hair too late. The sword point grazed his thigh, and Zevo nearly buckled and lost his balance. He recovered just long enough to press on Finn, forcing her back with a flurry of blows. Her defense weakened with each parry, and Zevo was certain the next strike would break her defense. Just as he raised his sword, a painful cough racked him. Zevo gripped his chest and left himself open. Finn took the opportunity. Her sword sliced open his right cheek and sheared off half of his mustache as the blade ran down from his cheekbone and curved inward, splitting the corner of his lips and chin. Zevo pushed his four-fingered left hand against his chin to keep the skin from cracking open. The witcher spat blood in Finn's face, and she recoiled. He wasted no time swinging towards her neck as hard as he could. She held her sword up to parry, but could not withstand Zevo's angry blow. His sword ripped Finn's throat open, and she collapsed. The final rebel could have escaped during this violent exchange. He must have seen that continuing the fight was hopeless. But he stood his ground and pressed onward. Fruitlessly. When it was all over, Zevo dropped his sword and pulled out a small vial of White Rafford's decoction from his bag. 
The milky liquid burned as it went down his throat, and he nearly spat it up. He forced himself to swallow, and felt his skin quickly start to stitch itself up. It was an odd sensation. Not painful, but it provided no relief. If anything, it itched terribly. Then Zevo collapsed onto his hands and knees and spat bile onto the stone, hoping to force the burning out of his chest. It, of course, didn't work. Witcher! Zevo heard Ethramel wheeze from the lock below. The sorcerer took a deep, rattling breath. Would you mind raising the water and opening the gate so we can get the fuck out of here? Zevo did not feel like rising. It all suddenly felt so futile. His life, he thought, only seemed to be one battle after another, and the only thing he had to show for it was a mass of scars. Been a while since I got a new one, though, Zevo thought, gingerly touching his cheek. The thought made him laugh, but laughing hurt. He still did not feel like rising. But this is what Zevo was created for. So he got up and stumbled over to the wooden crank. 3. Carmignola threaded the final stitch into Zevo's face and sat back, satisfied with his work. The winding scar that ran across the right side of Zevo's face did not improve his appearance, but the Witcher was never much of a looker to begin with. I'll take the stitches out in a few days. Would you like to take a look? Carmignola asked. He rummaged in his bag for his hand mirror. What would be the point? Zevo grunted. He was staring at a map of the Pontar Valley in his lap. He had retrieved it off of Finn's body. Two spots were circled in red ink. The map had no legend, but it was clear enough that the circles indicated safe havens for those serving the Gutter King. The doctor nodded and coughed into the crook of his elbow. It no longer hurt, thank the gods. He was able to whip up a simple antidote to slowly sap the poison away. His companions drank it greedily. Up on the quarterdeck, Captain Bothick shouted something to the crew rowing below. Carmignola squinted up at the sky. It was early afternoon, and he wondered how much longer until they reached the town of Tarnow. He hoped they would stay there for at least a few nights, but he knew that wasn't likely. His companions, it seemed, were always in a hurry to get somewhere. This time it's the Pontar Valley, Carmignola thought, heading straight to the heart of this gutter rebellion. After their encounter with Finn, Carmignola wasn't sure that was the best idea. Captain Bothick shouted again and spun the wheel to the left. The river lion started turning, and Carmignola walked over to the railing. He saw a jetty not too far ahead. Without thinking, he said, Is that Tarnow? Aye, Captain Bothick said. They might want to look a little closer, lad. Carmignola frowned and saw what the captain meant. The jetty was destroyed, its wooden planks broken and splintered. The buildings behind it, too, were similarly destroyed either torn down or burned. There was no smoke or fires, but ash was heavy in the air. There didn't look to be a single soul in the town. Son of a bitch, Jeremiah said. Ethramel spat at the drowners in the river below. I'll drop you all off here, but I'll have to turn the ship around and dock the river line at the next closest port. It'll cost me some time getting to Mahakam. Bothick gave a crooked grin. I keep my word. I'll deliver your crossbows in as quick a manner as possible but you can't account for force majeure. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Zipkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. 
be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at TalesWitcherPod on X, or at TalesFromTheWitcher.Buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.